In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 9. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. As you may know, I'm in the U.S. now. East Coast, New York, New Jersey area of the country. I've taken a trip to investigate the bookstore whose brand I found on a number of the books in our mysterious storage unit. And the further I've gotten from the unit, the clearer my head's felt. No whispers, no dreams, nothing. It's like it stopped affecting me entirely. You might have seen on social media that I found some bookstores, but no real success, though. Turns out the address I had on record is the old address of the bookstore. They moved premises in the 70s, so now I'm scoping out as many old bookstores as I can, because I've been unable to locate exactly where they moved to. When I find it, I'll know, though. But meanwhile, away from the storage unit, I can just release normal episodes. (laughs) No letters, no documents, no, uh, no, um, I I found a USB thumb drive in my pocket, uh, Jackson, Arthur, uh, Wafia White, McWingert, Nicole Doolin, Mary Murphy, Erica Sanderson, Graham Rowitz, me, me. The USB stick contains seven numbered folders, one to seven. Each folder contains a single file, either a WAV file or a DOC file. The file names seem to explain what each of the files are, so I'll clarify those and either include the audio or read out the contents of the documents. The first file is an audio file labeled Voicemail Recorded Message, March 28, 2022, at 10.01 a.m. Janet Purvey. You have reached Janet Purvey. I can answer my phone right now, but I won't because I am on the beach with my family. You will just have to call me back next week when I'm home, and not a second before. If you call before Monday, you will get this same message. And now the... Hey Janet, this is Mom, just calling to see how your trip is going. Call me when you get home so I can hear all about it. Don't get too sunburned. Love you guys. Bye-bye. The second file is a document containing an archive of an email which I shall read in its entirety. File name, email, received April 6, 2022, at 2.34 p.m. To 
jpervy at gmail.com, from Denise Drake at nfschools.org. Mrs. Purvey. Hello, Janet. This is Denise Drake, Adam's guidance counselor here at school, and I felt the need to reach out to you about your son. Over the past couple of days, I have received complaints from several of Adam's teachers concerning his behavior in class. Adam is not acting up in class. I wanted to say that right away. I don't know if you remember speaking to me during the last school year about how much we all adore Adam, how outgoing, charming, and funny he is, and how much we love him. From what his teachers are telling me, Adam has become distant and quiet lately, withdrawn. He doesn't talk or participate, even when he's directly called on in class. He won't answer the teacher or acknowledge that he is being spoken to. He won't do any of his assignments, and that is not like the Adam we know at all. He's normally a great student and eager to learn. I'm not sure what's going on with Adam, but I wanted to touch base with you and see if you might know the reason behind his behavior change. I know you guys just came back from a long vacation last week, and maybe that's all this is. Hope so, anyway. Please get back to me ASAP. Thanks, Denise Drake, Guidance Counselor. File 3. Another audio file. Voicemail recorded message. April 7, 2022. At 1.02 p.m. Janet Purvey. You have reached Janet Purvey. I can answer my phone right now, but I won't, because I am on the beach with my family. You will just have to call me back next week when I am home, and not a second before. If you call before Monday, you will get this same message. And now the... Janet, you must not have gotten around to changing your message yet. This is Denise Drake, again. You never replied to my email from yesterday, and I really need to speak to you. I'm sitting here with Adam. Adam got into a fight with another student. I don't know what happened exactly, but Adam attacked another boy in his science class. The event was very minor, from what I am told, and no one got hurt, so I don't feel the need for a suspension at this time. I am just going to have Adam sit here with me for the rest of the day. I would like for you and your husband to come in tomorrow morning for a meeting with me, though. Adam has never been aggressive before, and Adam doesn't look well. I don't know if he is sick or just tired, but something is wrong. He has large black circles around his eyes, his hair is a mess, and he looks very pale. Maybe he hasn't been sleeping? Maybe he got sick on your trip? I don't know. But we need to figure it out. Please call me back. Mr. Black says he loves all of us, just like his own kids. Adam? What are you saying? I can't hear you, sweetheart. Speak up. Mr. Black loves all of his children. He loves all of us. Mr. Black? Who is that, sweetheart? Janet, Adam has been talking about someone named Mr. Black, and I'm not sure who he's talking about. He keeps saying that Mr. Black is his new dad. I don't know who that is or what that means. Did something happen between you and Mr. Purvey? Anyway, another thing we need to talk about. Please call me back. Please. Adam, sit down, sweetheart. File 4. Another audio file. Voice recording message. 
April 8, 2022, at 11.35 a.m. Janet Purvey. You have reached Janet Purvey. I can answer my phone right now, but I won't, because I am on the beach with my family. You will just have to call me back next week when I am home, and not a second before. If you call before Monday, you will get this same message. And now the... Mrs. Purvey, this is Mr. Zenith, the principal of the middle school. Ms. Drake has been trying to get a hold of you for a couple of days now with no luck. I, uh, hate to say it, but there's been another incident with your son, Adam. He attacked other students at lunch today, five in all. Three boys and two girls, all in the sixth grade, same as your son. From what I've been told, Adam started biting them out of nowhere until one of the teachers managed to pull him off. It's really bad. Broke the skin. Drew blood. Your cell number is the only one in the system as Adam's contact information, so I really need you to answer your phone. I had no choice but to call the local police and get them involved. They're on their way to your house right now and should be there any minute. Answer your door, please, at least. I've called the parents of the other kids as well. I need to hear from you immediately. Thank you. File 5. Another audio file. Voice recording message. April 8, 2022, at 11.55 a.m. Janet Purvey. You have reached Janet Purvey. I can answer my phone right now, but I won't, because I am on the beach with my family. You will just have to call me back next week when I am home, and not a second before. If you call before Monday, you will get this same message. And now the... Mrs. Purvey, Mr. Zenith, again. Your son, Adam, is gone, along with the five other students involved in the incident. They... I don't know what happened, but they all took off before anyone knew what was happening. They didn't say a word. They just ran for the exit. One of our fifth grade teachers and her students said they saw them minutes ago through the classroom windows, running into the woods behind the building. I talked to the two officers who are now just leaving your house, and they said everything is dark and no one is answering when they knock. Front door appears locked, too. Where are you? The police are going to start looking for the kids. If you see Adam or the other students before I finally speak to you, please call us or the police immediately or bring them straight to the police station. File 6, the final audio file. 911 Emergency Services. Call transcript. Call recorded on April 8, 2022 at 8.30 p.m. 911, what is your emergency? Hello? Hello? My name is Denise Drake, and I live at 6 Weston. And there's a group of young kids standing outside my house right now. There are six of them, here, right now. Did you say a group of young kids? Yes, six graders. Four boys and two girls. Do you know these kids, ma'am? Yes. They go to my school. I'm their guidance counselor. What are the kids doing right now? They're standing in my yard and staring up at my bedroom window. That's where I am, in my bedroom. They're staring right at me. I know they see me. This doesn't feel right. Do you know why they are there, ma'am? I don't know. There was an incident at the school this morning. 
one of the young boys, Adam, attacked the rest. And then they all took off and no one has been able to find them all day. Oh my God, there is someone else down there with them now. A man, I don't know who he is. Stay calm, ma'am. Officers are on their way. Can you describe the man for me, please? I can't really see his face very well. He's wearing a black, wide-brim hat. He's tall, light-skinned, I think. Dressed in an all-black suit. He just looked up at me. His eyes are all black, too. Oh, my God. Please, get here. They're coming towards the front door now. They're going to try to get inside. Someone needs to get here. Help will be there any minute. Is the front door to your home locked? Yes. Good. Lock your bedroom door, too. And hold tight, ma'am. Please. Holy shit. They knocked the door down. They're inside. Please help me. Please. Ma'am? You said they are inside the home? Ma'am? I can hear them coming up the stairs. What are you doing here, Adam? Mr. Black wanted to meet you, Ms. Drake. I told him that you're real pretty. He thinks that maybe you want to be our new mom. Would you like to be our new mom, Ms. Drake? You being here, Adam, is not right. And I don't know who you are, sir, but the police will be here any second. You all need to leave right now. You did good, son. She is everything that you have described. She will make an excellent mother for you all. Come with me, my dear. We are your family now, and the kids and I will show you love and worship like you have never experienced. Come, be theirs, be mine. A true family is the greatest gift we can have in this painful world, and ours will be strong and glorious. Come, dear. Come now. Let us be away. No! Don't fucking touch me! No! Ma'am. Can you hear me? Ma'am. Denise. What is happening? Denise? And the seventh and final file, a document. Official police report, April 10, 2022. Officer Rebecca Towns, first officer on the scene. I responded to a 911 emergency call located at 6 West End. I was the first officer on the scene. The call had been a possible home invasion in progress. The caller was the owner of the home, Ms. Denise Drake. When I first arrived on the scene, I found the front door of the house busted open, broken off the hinges. The house was dark, except for a single light that I had seen in an upstairs window. Due to the possibility that the home invasion was still in progress, I drew my weapon and entered slowly into the home. Room by room, I cleared the building. There was no one there. The single light that I had seen had been coming from an upstairs bedroom. The door to the bedroom had also been forced open in the same manner as the front door. I found possible signs of struggle in the bedroom. I did not find either Ms. Denise Drake or any intruders on the premises. After not finding anyone in the home, I backed out of the house and waited for CSI to arrive and process the scene. 
After more officers arrived, we were able to speak to the neighbors, but there doesn't seem to be any witnesses to the incident at this moment. The unknown male heard on the 911 call has yet to be identified. We are currently trying to locate Ms. Denise Drake and the missing children. In our uh, first tale, we meet a mother distraught by the disappearance of her son and a reporter on the case. It seems like a simple thing, an argument, teenage anger, running away. But our reporter's good. He can smell a story. And in this tale, shared with us by author James Alexander, there's definitely more to this story than his first apparent. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Samuel Daniels, Kristen DiMercurio, and Kyle Akers. So get out your notebook, put on your press hat, and start investigating. Check in all the drawers, look under the bed, and most of all, make sure you search the closet. I'm sorry about your son, ma'am. Maximilian smiled at her, proffering his hand for a shake. The police had left a few hours ago, presumably finding nothing of interest from Mrs. Miller, and dusk had already begun to settle, the chill of mid-autumn forcing him to shrug his coat closer. The son, Raymond Miller, had been missing for the past 12 hours. It was enough time to cause a stir in the small town, but also with enough time kept under wraps to allow for Max to get a story hot off the press. The town was secluded, a product of the aching stretch of road that had welcomed him on his move in. Even the police launching the investigation, a squadron of tired faces, had come from the next town over. Max had thought it would be nice, a fresh start with the only uproar being a who won the annual cherry pie baking contest. None of the pain that lingered in flashes of memory from his home city, even with the aggressors long gone. None of the weight from the people that refused to even see him when they deigned to look at him. It seemed he had been wrong. Mrs. Miller was on the taller side, cheeks sallow and flushed, and her blue eyes were still shot with veiny red. Blotchy makeup dotted her face, as if she'd attempted to make herself presentable before giving up on the whole ordeal. Even without the way she hunched in on herself, she looked frail, like the wind filtering in from the open door would topple her at any moment. You can come in. It's fine. There's no one to keep up now. And you can call me Amanda. All right. Amanda. I didn't want to impose. The smile was still on his face, if a bit worn thin, and he stepped into the house. It was clean. Impeccably so. Most likely a product of the anxious energy that had spurred on her attempts at her makeup. A way to keep appearances up in the somewhat nosy nature of the small town. A pang of sympathy shot through him at the thought. He wasn't foreign to having to keep up appearances while shattered on the inside. 
Amanda led him over to an armchair, green with a fuzzy pattern and uncomfortably close to the ones his mother kept in their old apartment, and patted the cushion. You're the new boy in town, right? I suppose there's no one for you to keep up waiting either. Sit down. Would you like something to drink? No, I suppose there isn't. And no thank you. I'm not thirsty. Your son lived with you, right? He gave her a polite, if strained, smile. A reflex his own mother had drilled into him. He thought he had shook it. Yes. He stayed upstairs. But the police already searched in there. They didn't find anything. (sighs) Ah. And what's that door lead to? He gestured to a plain-looking door, sat back a little ways in the wall. While it had been closed firmly, a strip of darkness still seeped out from under it onto the floor. Just a closet. Her lips tightened, and she played with the edges of her shawl. All right. He nodded. Pulling out a video camera, he twirled it in his palm. The weight was familiar, comforting. Do you mind if I record us? I find that it helps keep the flow of the conversation going. For both of us. I can set it up just there, on that table where the lamp is. She gave him a long pause, simply smoothing down her dress. She looked like she was going to crack. We don't have to if you don't want to. And don't worry, I'll be the only one who sees this footage. I wanted more of a traditional piece for this. Her eyes narrowed, and she nodded. It's... all right. It would be for the best, right? He nodded. The table caught a wide shot of the room, of his seat and her and the door between them, and even a family picture of her and her son, both smiling, that hung on the wall. He clicked the camera on and returned to his seat. So tell me about your son. I hear he was an interesting young man. Well liked. She nodded, brushing at her cheek. Mascara smeared like chalk. He was. Always my little golden boy. His father left us at a young age, which may have accounted for some things. But we always powered through them. She gave a little nod, as if convincing herself more than anything. Yes, of course. I heard he was very involved with the church, right? Her eyes glowed. Yes, yes, he was. Can you tell me more about that? He was an altar boy. Always came with me to Mass. Even after. Well, he was a very devoted boy. After what? He was big at the school, too. Loved to put on all his little plays with his friends. Even when it interfered with church. She frowned then, again smoothing out her skirt. Max simply nodded, dropping the question. Would you like some tea? Sure. Sounds lovely. As Amanda left the room, her heels clicking against the floor, he noticed a smudge, dark brown, on one of her hands. A mishap during cleaning, perhaps. He got up, walking to the camera and hitting pause. Amanda was still in the kitchen, so he clicked down the volume and replayed his footage. Since he had the time, he might as well search for a useful clip for a quote. Something both eye-catching and heart-wrenching to print. It was less work later for him. The first few minutes were fine. A few background noises, except for some sniffles from Amanda, but easy to ignore. But around the three-minute mark, something picked up. A low scratchiness. Static. In the kitchen, Amanda was still at work, so he raised the volume. Not static. Breathing. Tea is ready, and I thought you would want extra sugar. I feel so sorry for keeping you out so late. Max tried to hide his flinch at the sudden interruption, 
fumbling with the pause button. Thank you, really. It's uh, quite fine, Amanda. I don't really have anything to go back to. Now that Amanda was back, another person to quiet the discomfort of being alone in such an empty house, he was sure he'd been mistaken about the breathing. His nerves at being here, and perhaps the unevenness caused by Amanda's tears, had made two into three. I know the feeling. Well, I'm sure they'll find your son soon enough. He wanted to reach out, maybe to pat her shoulder in the way that acquaintances did. But a decade of fear with breaking boundaries with someone like her held him back. Her resemblance to his mother was almost uncanny. While they hardly looked alike, the way she held herself, her tone of voice, the way she talked about her son were all similar enough to make his skin crawl. Amanda didn't look convinced by his words. He hit record again, retaking his seat. Anyways, can you tell me more about Raymond? His friends? She gave him a bit of a grimace at the words, and he regretted asking. I was never fond of the friends he made in high school. The theater crowd, well, you know how they are, a bad influence. I can't see why he didn't just stick with his other friends. They were such nice people. Max watched pale pink chips from her nails as they flexed like claws against her dress, mentally making a note to drop this part of the conversation. Hmm. He was entirely too familiar with what she meant by a bad influence. Well, I'm sorry to bring up old wounds, so to speak. The school did have nice plays, even if they did cut into the time he spent at Mass. He was heading off to college, right? Yes, theater major at one of the state schools. Her lips drew tight, pale pink hiding bony white. Mm-hmm. It seemed there was no safe avenue of conversation. Can you tell me about the disappearance? How were things between you two leading up to it, if you don't mind me asking? He could have fished it out of the police report. His brain screamed to do that as he felt himself sinking further into the chair. The house felt like it was watching him. But by then it would be old news, ripped through the town despite the ever-tight lips of Mrs. Amanda Miller. Tense. We had a bit of a falling out. Just childish things, of course. Things he would have come to his senses about. Max's hand curled into a fist and then released. He talked about seeing his father. We haven't spoken in years, see, and his father is a... a bad influence. He could feel himself slipping, the words drowning him out. If he didn't keep his nails dug tight into the legs of his pants, he was back in the stuffy apartment that had belonged to his mother, picking at the ugly pink sweater she had forced him into while he couldn't bear to meet her eyes. Max tried to keep his eyes on Amanda's face, but the longer he did the more they couldn't help but slide to the door. He stood up, going over to his camera and pressing stop. Just a moment, please. He flipped through the recording. He could hear the breathing, loud enough that he wondered how he ever could have not heard it. Maybe it was just his own, turned ragged with paranoia. But the door. Something dark was shifting under it, seeping out to stain the carpet. His eyes darted back to the real door. The carpet only held a slight discoloration, like it had been bleached recently. What's that on your arm? It looks like a bruise. Something like concern had entered her voice. Her eyes crinkled as a hand reached out, as if she could touch him across the gap between them. His sleeve had ridden up from all his worrying at it. It's for my hormone supplements. Testosterone. Bi-weekly in the arm. 
intramuscular. She didn't have to know that. Her eyes narrowed, and the hand drew back. I see. Do you? You haven't touched your tea. It's getting cold. She frowned, and he could almost forget that he thought he heard breathing. Forget the way the shadows had moved under the door, but only on the tape. He set the camera down again, turning back on the recording. He walked back over to the chair, sitting down and taking a sip of his tea. It tasted a little bitter, but he took another. At least the hot splash at the back of his throat served to calm him. So you were the last one to see him go? It slipped out of him, like water dripping off of an icicle, and she flinched, nails like claws against her dress again. I suppose so. Suppose so. You two fought, so he left right after that. He took another swig of the tea. Definitely bitter. His eyes strayed to the door again. Nothing living could be in there, he decided. It was too quiet. Amanda's lips curled. I suppose so, yes. He was having one of his moods. He wouldn't see reason. Max's mind flashed back to the spot on her hand, dark brown and smeared, like it had been hastily wiped away, like old blood. Uh, of, of course, that's all it is. That's all it is. Max took another sip of tea. He could smell the blood, oozing, dripping, creeping. He shook his head, and he couldn't smell it anymore, but he could smell the bleach. He didn't want to look at the door, but some part of him knew he had to. And when he looked back again, he saw the discoloration clearly on the carpet. It still looked wet. You keep looking at that door, you know. Her hands were folded on her lap again. Sorry. Why don't I get us something to eat? You seem nervous. A small laugh left her. <laughs> it didn't reach her eyes. All right. She stood up, and as soon as she exited the room, he grabbed the camera, flipping through the recording. The next segment of conversation was normal for the first few minutes, only a bit of static overlaying their voices. Sweat slicked his palms as he fast-forwarded. As he slowed down, movement caught his eye in the corner of the frame. The picture in the frame was moving, only slightly. As the video scrolled past, the sun's eyes locked on his. In a low, strangled voice, he spoke. Run. You like biscuits, right? He could hear each thud of her foot in time with his heart drawing closer. He tried to stand, wobbling on his feet, but he felt tired. The jittering in his mind had stopped. The window was precious feet away, closed and locked, the door to the hallway even farther. Amanda would be in the doorway in moments, and he knew he wouldn't be able to run. Instead, Max crawled forwards over the slick carpet as curdled blood clogged his nostrils until his hand rested on the knob of the door. Warmth burned beneath the metal. When he looked up, Amanda stood in the doorway. A carving knife, flecked with blood, was clutched in her right hand. But as her eyes locked on his hand, grasping the doorknob, her face turned bone white with fear. You don't know what you're doing. Black clouded his vision. If he didn't act now... He never would. But he does. With the last remnants of his strength, he threw open the door. No one would have believed him if not for the tape. 
The official report was that Raymond had somehow managed to cling to life for hours after being stuffed into the closet, that his mother had missed enough of the important stuff that he had been able to bide his time until one brave reporter, Maximilian hadn't wanted to be named, let him out. Of course, over the process of the investigation, somehow the tape was corrupted, only sparking with static whenever someone pressed play. Whether that was the product of government oversight or Raymond's final touches, Max couldn't be sure. All he knew was that he couldn't wait to erase it from his mind. Max knew Raymond hadn't been alive. No one could be, after what was cut away. No one would have had the strength to do what he did to his own mother and still managed to shamble away. It was a closed casket for the mother and an empty casket for Ray. The police had shown the recording to him only once, after an hour of questioning had failed to jog his memory. Still, it had burned into his mind. Because in the tape, for a split second, Amanda had looked exactly like his mother. But Max was safe here, back in the city that had been his home for the first 18 years of his life. After all his years of running, he had nothing to be afraid of. Childhood is full of wonders, magic, and mystery in the macabre. Fairies at the bottom of every garden, monsters in every closet, and sometimes unexplainable things which you just know exist through beautiful bewitching. But in this tale, shared with us by author S.H. Cooper, we meet a girl whose excitement at finding something mystical soon turns to confusion and then horror. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight, Jeff Clement, Nicole Doolin, and Sarah Olivia. So roll out the red carpet for a tale of transformation, trappings, and terror as we enter The Changing Room. I didn't want to tell Dad about the changing room when I first found it. It was down in the basement, where I wasn't supposed to be. Dad kept all of his scrap and spare parts from his odd jobs as the town fix-it man down there. He thought I'd get hurt. It was also where he spent a lot of time and he didn't want me getting underfoot. Forbidding it just made it more enticing, though. I'd sneak down when he was off doing work somewhere usually mechanical stuff or carpentry, the kind of stuff that'd take a few hours. I liked to wander through the piles of junk laid out in a chaotic pattern only he understood and pretend I was some kind of explorer discovering lost treasure. Usually, I'd stick close to the stairs in case he came home and I had to run back up real quick. But as I got more comfortable, I'd go further and further. Dad used the side entrance in the basement on his way to and from work, so I always had to keep an ear out for the warning jingle of his keys in case he came home earlier than expected. It was when I was playing one of my make-believe games that I found the changing room. 
I went as far back as I ever had, slithering around old bits of this and that until I hit the back wall. I trailed along it, my fingers sliding through dust and cobwebs when they caught against something. It felt oddly familiar. I frowned while trying to place it and squinted against the gloom. A doorknob. I hadn't known we had another room in the basement. I twisted it, and it turned in my hand. Slowly, my breathing nervous and shallow, I pulled it open. The inside was dark. I groped along the wall, which felt like the same concrete block as the basement itself, until I found a switch. It lit the room up in fluorescent light, and I gasped. (gasps) Sheer, colorful fabric like veils decorated the walls. Large pillows with golden tassels were thrown about the floor atop a thick rug. Tropical plants hung in cages from the ceiling. A single-armed chaise lounge covered in red and gold velvet was in the center. I stepped in, mouth hanging open and spun in a circle. It was like something out of my new favorite movie, Aladdin. I jumped on the lounge, rolled around on the pillows, smelled the flowers, only to discover that they were disappointingly fake. I didn't know what this room was, but I never wanted to leave. I wished I'd brought books and snacks so that I could stay there and imagine I was Princess Jasmine in my palace. But Dad would probably be back soon, and I didn't want him catching me in the basement. Especially not in this room that he was probably setting up as a surprise for me. My ninth birthday was the following month, after all. Gleefully, I sprang up and tried to reorganize the room exactly as I'd found it. I didn't want him to know I'd already discovered it. I turned the light off again and slipped out, grinning from ear to ear. If I hadn't found the room by breaking one of Dad's strictest rules, I probably would have had a hard time containing my excitement. I didn't want to get in trouble, though, so I kept my mouth shut and waited for him to tell me about it himself. I didn't dare go back down, no matter how much I wanted to. There was too much risk that I'd get caught and he'd take it away from me, so I had to play it cool. Days went by, then weeks all without a single mention of the Jasmine Room. It got harder and harder to keep quiet about it the closer my birthday got. I'd sneak looks at my dad across the dinner table, silently urging him to finally break down and tell me. Then my birthday finally came. I got a new Barbie from my grandparents, a new shirt with a cartoon polar bear on it from my aunt, and a purple bike with streamers coming out of the handlebars from dad. No one mentioned the room. I had to spend the whole day pretending I was thrilled with the gifts and my party and cake, but all the while, I couldn't stop thinking about the Jasmine Room. Disappointed as I was, I had to wait another few days before I could visit again, after Dad had gone to work and Grandma had fallen asleep while watching her afternoon shows. I tiptoed down to the basement and carefully picked my way to where I thought the door was. It was dark back there and took some feeling around, but eventually I found the doorknob again. With a pleased smile, I tugged it open and turned on the light. The jasmine room was gone. Where the plants had been now hung sparkly stars in a moon, and fake bushes had been lined up around a large nest of twigs, big enough for me to lie in. Small trees with little birds in them completed the forest scene. Confusion swept through me. If Dad had made this for me, why hadn't he ever shown me the jasmine room? I liked it much better than this outdoor theme he'd chosen. With a disappointed sigh, I closed it off again and went back upstairs. 
that night, I couldn't keep my mouth shut anymore. I stood in the entrance to his office, my hands knotted behind my back, and chewed my lip, trying to figure out how to bring up the topic of my new playroom. Dad finally looked up from his book. Hmm. Something up, Peanut? Kind of. He set his book down and waved me in. What's on your mind? You're gonna be mad. I am? How come? Because I did something I'm not supposed to and found something that I think was going to be a surprise. His brow furrowed. Okay. What is it? I know I'm not allowed in the basement, but I went down there. He waited, expression unchanged. I stared down at my feet. I found the room. The room? It wasn't an angry reaction, or surprised, really. It was mostly bemused. I looked up at him, and he had his head tilted slightly to one side. Yeah, the one in the basement with all the Princess Jasmine and Forest stuff? Dad sat back in his chair. Sorry, kiddo, you've lost me. You know, the one in the back that you were making into a playroom for me. But he shook his head. There was no playroom, he said. I told him I'd seen it, not once, but twice. And both times it had been different. He had me describe exactly where the door to the room was, and while I stood at the top of the steps, he went down to the basement to investigate. It was a long few minutes waiting for him to come back up. When he did, he had cobwebs stuck in his dark hair and some dirt streaks across his hands. He hadn't found any door, though. After he washed up, he tucked me into bed. I tried to tell him there was a door and that the room had changed. It was real. But he dismissed it as a childish fantasy. No more going in the basement. It's dirty and dangerous, and I don't want you making a mess of my things, got it? If you do it again, there will be serious consequences. Yes, sir. His serious expression relaxed into a sigh, and he kissed my forehead. (sighs) Good night, Peanut. I love you. He shut my door, leaving me in darkness, but more curious about the changing room than ever before. If he wasn't aware of it, he wasn't changing it. And I had to know what was. I had to bide my time before I was able to go back down to the basement. I had to get back there and prove the changing room was real. Work away from home happened to be slow, however, so Dad was down in the basement a lot working on his own projects. When he was upstairs, he was on high alert and keeping a close eye on my whereabouts. I made sure not to even get too close to the basement door in the kitchen so he didn't think I was going to try and go back down. I wasn't sure I'd ever get the chance again. Not until Dad came storming up the steps one evening, swearing and clutching one hand to his chest. Damn it. Through gritted teeth, he asked for my help. Oh, Grandma. I nodded numbly, fixated on all the red dripping from his bald fist and sprayed across the front of his shirt. A few minutes later, I was staring after his pickup from the front window while Grandma assured me she'd be there in just five minutes. She swept in in three, squeezed me in a tight hug, and quickly cleaned the trail of drops that had followed Dad out of the house, all while telling me he would be fine and home before I knew it. They're all better. How about I make us an early dinner, hmm? 
Having Grandma bustling around was very reassuring and I was soon able to shake off the shock of Dad's injury. Thinking about it still made my skin crawl and I wanted nothing more than to give him a hug, but her constant chatter chased away the worst of it. I sat at the table while she made us pizza bagels for dinner, and we sat in front of the TV to watch some of her evening programs. It occurred to me that now might be the best and only time to get back to the changing room. I had to take advantage of it. I'm gonna go to the bathroom. Grandma held her plate out to me. Okay. Put the dishes in the sink on your way, please. I sprang up, happy for a task that would put me in the kitchen. I deposited our plates carefully in the sink and then crept as quietly as I could to the basement door. A peek out to the living room revealed Grandma's show was back on and she was engrossed in the storyline. Biting my lip, I opened the door and slipped inside. I skirted my dad's blood on the steps and began inching my way towards the door. Knowing it was nighttime made the air in the basement feel heavier, more oppressive, and the familiar shapes of his tools and scattered parts cast long, strange shadows along the floor. Determined to not let my imagination chase me off from proving once and for all that the changing room was real, I scurried towards the back wall. I was almost to the door when I heard it. A faint scratching sound, like a mouse scampering across concrete. It was coming from up ahead where the door was. I froze. It kept on. A weak, soft scraping sound. Hello? I was surprised I'd been able to find my voice. Surprised more that I'd been able to use it. The scratching stopped. Maybe my first thought had been right. It was just a mouse. That was what I told myself as I made my feet move closer and closer to the door. It was totally silent now. I waited for my eyes to adjust to the deepened black of the back corner and finally made out the doorknob. But as I reached for it, heart pounding in triumphant excitement, another shape hanging above it caught my eye. I pulled my hand back sharply, scared for a moment that it might be a spider hanging from its thread. But it didn't move, and the longer I looked at it, the more I was able to make sense of it. A padlock, left unlocked but hanging in place so that the door couldn't simply be opened. If Dad said the door didn't exist, why did he need that? With my courage quickly pulling into a chill in the pit of my stomach, I reached up with trembling fingers and pulled the padlock from its spot. It scraped, metal on metal, and I let it fall to the ground as I reached for the doorknob. The door was yanked inward out of my hand. A howling figure scrambled out of darkness towards me, clawing at me. I screamed and slapped and punched, tearing myself away. It crashed after me, panting and wheezing and reaching. I could hear its heavy footsteps slapping against the concrete floor just behind me. I shrieked for my grandma and threw things from the shelf down between us, but still, the thing from the changing room charged after me. Its voice was low and verbling. Help me! Grandma was halfway down the stairs when I leapt at her. She started to ask me what was wrong, looked over my shoulder, and then started dragging me up. I glanced back just long enough to see a flash of matted hair, streaks of red, and wide, wild eyes. I was thrown into the kitchen, and Grandma turned around, heading down into the basement. Grandma, no! Call 911. Hurry! She closed the door after herself. Dad never got to come back inside the house. 
The moment he got home, he was placed under arrest by a swarm of officers who'd responded to my call. A gurney was carried up from the basement. The woman on it, Elena Belrive, survived. She'd been his latest and last victim. The changing room had never been a playroom for me. It had been one for Dad's clients. While I had played upstairs, blissfully unaware, Dad had constructed a secret, soundproof room in our basement. He'd used it for years, crafting sets so that he could film himself torturing and murdering women, according to his audience's twisted desires. The tapes were mailed out in boxes of junk. An Arabian princess. A forest nymph. Nurses, schoolgirls, whatever they wanted, he provided. He'd bring them in through the basement entrance at the side of the house in the dead of night, usually while they were drugged or drunk from a night at the bar. After so long and a dozen victims, all societal castaways no one would look for, he'd gotten careless. He'd thought I was too afraid to go down into the basement and no one was ever down there without him. And he'd stop locking the doors between victims. After I found it, he knew he had to move. Elena was meant to be his last in our house, and then he was going to move the show. Rent a space. Something. He hadn't figured it out yet. I'd put a wrench in his plans for the first time in a long time. And then Elena fought back. He thought she was mostly dead and decided to get playful. He hadn't expected her to grab the blade, turn it on him, manage to get a good cut of her own in. He later said he thought he handled her before he ran out, covered in only half his own blood. He'd thrown the padlock on as an extra precaution, but didn't lock it. He hadn't anticipated how badly Elena wanted to live, or that his daughter was still consumed with curiosity for the changing room. Now he's waiting to die, trapped, staring at the same four walls every day, while the knowledge of his inescapable fate slowly crushes him. Just like all his victims. blistering heat of summer, sticky, cloying atmosphere, air hazy like the sidewalk itself is cooking, the kind of day filled with pressure, foreboding, and a young girl taking a stroll, the horrors of the real world not yet something she's forced to see as they are. But in this tale, shared with us by author Rebecca Wilcox, we discover that sometimes there's no avoiding an early brush with a grim reality. Performing this tale is Mary Murphy. So dress lightly, hydrate, don't get heat stroke. On a day like this, the last thing you want to do is crash. I remember the heat, first and foremost. Before I'd realized what had happened, there was this all-encompassing warmth that wrapped around me, a breeze that seemed to have trembled up from the mouth of hell, carrying the screams from the pit with it. I shut my eyes, 
I cannot remember for how long for, but they were scrunched as if I was trying to push my own eyeballs further back into my head, into the darkness, in the hope I might not see what was unraveling before me. Time passed, the silence dawned, and I knew it was over. Only the aftermath to look upon, only the consequence to apprehend. It had been summer, one of those sweltering summers where you'd have paid a rabid animal to pull the skin from your bones, just to feel the breeze through them. The highway had bubbled under the heat, and the milkshake my mom had fixed me from the diner she worked in had congealed, and was now blocking my throat like cotton wool. But it was all I had, and all I'd be entertained by that afternoon. I was often alone as a kid. My parents' divorce had forced me upon my mother, which in turn had resulted in her working at some shitty diner down a nearly abandoned highway just to make sure food was still kept on our table. Pop hadn't looked back since he left. The undesirables, as we were, had been traded in for the more conventional beauty he'd found in our neighbor across the road. Even her kids, bastards though they were, had these cherub-like faces. Renaissance artists couldn't match the pink that crested their cheeks. As my father stepped into his red car the evening he left, with those blubbery two in the back seat... Even I desired to bury myself into those chubby cheeks. But life had now sullied into knowing nothing but the shaded under-eyes of my mother and the rare light touch of her hand as she curbed me away when I tried to kiss her. Yet I trailed her still, like a puppy who had taken a kick in the side, gluttonous for the affection my pop was now bestowing on the curved cheeks of the cherubs in the back of his car. One afternoon... I followed my mom to work, thinking I was brightening her day by keeping her company. She quickly condemned me to the sidewalk for an afternoon of counting cars as I passed or crushing cockroaches underfoot. I'd been sitting there until the sun had scorched my skin into blisters when I saw a car coming. A real flash fucker. You know the type. The car was red, cola red. I saw it miles before it reached us. I could hear its drone like a thousand hornets on an electric fence. I remember nearly choking on my lollipop, being so overwhelmed by this great monster racing toward me. As it got closer, I nearly wept at the sight of it. It was Pop. His smile carved into his face so deeply you could have believed there were hooks holding it to his ears. He kissed the hand of a rosy-cheeked woman who was attending to the two soft cherubs in the back seat, lulling in the afternoon sun. The scene was surreal, like one of those sidewalk posters for a place far from here. So tranquil, so affectionate. Would I ever know such joy in my life? I have lived enough to tell you that I have not. Within that moment of childish resentment for the happiness before me, I felt a tremendous melancholy at this image of family and bliss haunting me in the shadows of my own absent affections. My pop did not see me nor recognize me from the distance, and perhaps there was reason for that due to the excitable arms of the delicate beauty around him. But I wanted him to see me, to pull me from the wreckage of grasping desperation and sit me upon the plinth of joy that he had bestowed upon his new loves. 
I pulled myself up from the sidewalk. The hot soles of my feet almost congealed into my plastic sandals. I made my way toward the car, my sticky hands in desperate outreach, like a child desiring the best toy in the shop. I remember almost breaking into a run, the sweat down my forehead blending with my now blinding tears as I screamed, Papa! He had waved me goodbye, perhaps. That was one way of looking at it. His hand was what I saw first when I finally opened my eyes. It had broken through the windshield glass and melted into one with the wiper under the density of the heat. The hand waved back and forth, back and forth, his face frozen in a perpetual transition between devastation and pitiful woe. I'd waved back at first, the confusion of my naive brain, thinking he may have survived the crash as the car had skidded off the road. Then he let out a groan, something that comes from the pit of utter sorrow, twisting into a fatal death cry, followed by silence. I had not taken in the scene further than the brutal execution of my pop, and found myself numb to the scenario of wreckage that spilled out before me like a gutted pig. I found my feet were walking toward it, sticky hands still reaching out. I began to rummage through the mess, not knowing where flesh began and metal ended. There was such an outpouring of oil and sweat and blood. The musk could have been chewed upon, like the singeing of skin upon flame. I found my hands covered in gory matter, which I would persistently wipe on my sundress the further I searched. When I found some coins in my nearly decapitated pop's pocket, I placed them within my dress, knowing he would probably have wanted to treat me. When I finally saw the two cherubs in the back seat, it was as if someone had pulped a poodle. The blubbery pink faces had congealed into this toothy blancmange, and their curls spilled around the now singular face like it had been crowned though perhaps not as angelic as they once were. I found myself taking a seat amongst this beautiful family, all of whom had stopped to see me. We could perhaps have been happy, I thought, placing one of the cherub's curls across my own hair. Pop didn't have to alienate me from this joy, because I now sat so rightly amongst it, me and the beautiful family. When the police came, they were surprised to see me amongst this scene. My mom had told them she'd been watching me through the diner window most of the afternoon, and had only turned her back a moment when the car had hit the wall. They asked if I had seen what had happened, or if I was okay. They said I'd been a brave little girl, and that they were proud that I'd tried to come amongst the wreckage to save the injured family. But what was perhaps unfortunate was at the extreme dehydration I had experienced, worsened by the thick milkshake and the blazing sun, had given me distorted vision. And I had, in fact, stepped out in front of a car of an unknown family traveling down from California. I suppose I at least got to wave them goodbye before they left for good.
When you're a teen and you move into a new neighborhood and meet a new peer group, there's always that one guy. The guy who's pushy, aggressive, a bit of a braggart. That guy who everyone tolerates, pretends to like even, but is frankly obnoxious. And in this story, shared with us by author Seth Borgen, we join a kid who not only meets that guy, but is forced to be his designated best friend. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Kyle Akers, Nicole Goodnight, Peter Lewis, Nicole Doolin, and Mike Delgadio. So grit your teeth and bear it. Cope with him as best you can. Maybe turn to the other kids for advice. Otherwise, things are gonna get ugly. When my family moved to Loyal Oak the summer before 8th grade, my mother told me it was going to be great. I'll make new friends, and with these new friends I'll have adventures I couldn't even begin to imagine yet. Then she said that behind our new house was a huge forest for me to explore, as if that's the thing I'd always wanted. But things are already great. And they'll still be great. Just a different kind of great. I replayed this conversation in my mind, sitting on the curb in front of our new house. My elbows on my knees, my chin on my fists, my mother and my father watching men in coveralls unload everything we own from a blue truck. I recited my old phone number in my head, my old locker combination, the names of friends who said they'd write. I pictured Kristen Samuel's face. The girl I could have kissed. If only I had more time. No. I did not feel great. A boy on a bicycle rode past me slow, staring at me. The bike chain clicking underneath him. When he was about ten feet away, he did a little loop and clicked by me from the other direction. He looped again and finally stopped in front of me. He was skinny with a fiery red bowl cut. Every exposed inch of his skin swarmed with copper freckles. He looked me up and down, chewing on his upper lip. That's my house. He pointed to the one next to mine. I nodded and pointed at mine with my thumb. I'm new. I know. His green eyes narrowed. The people who used to live there died. He waited for me to say something. Uh, weird. No. What's really weird is the man shot the woman in the head and then shot himself in the head. Behind me, one of the men in coveralls had dropped a box of china, and my mother was on the cusp of a rampage. Things are gonna get ugly. When I looked back, the kid had not taken his eyes off me. I'm Simon Litch. Wynn Parker. My mother called the man in coveralls an ignoramus. My father tried to console her. Do you want to meet my girlfriend? 
I didn't. The kid Simon radiated weird. But I also didn't want to be anywhere near the fit my mother was on the verge of throwing. I didn't know which room was mine. Even if I did, it would be empty. I had nowhere to go. If I stuck around, I could see myself saying something like, If we'd never moved, your china would be fine. So yeah, I grabbed my bike and rode with Simon. We rode two blocks and toppled our bikes in front of a house that looked just like mine and Simon's. There was a third bike already laying in the yard. Simon stood over it and nudged it with his foot as though it were something that may or may not be dead. My girlfriend lives here. His cheek muscles nodded. He was suddenly seething. Her name is Sally Cathy. He knocked on the door. Socked feet on hardwood floors thumped towards us and the large door opened to a long and lean girl. Pretty. Achingly pretty. With brown hair bound in two long, thick braids. She was not thrilled at the sight of us. Oh. Hi, Simon. Simon grabbed my arm and pushed me forward a few inches. This is my best friend. His name is Wynn. Standing in the doorway, Sally Cathy looked between us a few times. Hi, Wynn. I waved. He's new. Simon slipped past Sally Cathy and into the house. That left me and Sally Cathy standing in the doorway. I waited for her to invite me in or tell me to take a hike, and I was eagerly going to do either. She smiled. Her teeth were tiny pearls, and from what I could tell, the smile was genuine. Come on in. I'm sorry. She flicked away my apology with her hand. That's just Simon. There was a third boy in the living room. He was handsome with broad shoulders I would never have, no matter how many push-ups I did in the morning. He was sitting in front of a paused football video game. He didn't notice or care that Simon was sitting directly behind him on an ottoman, staring at his head. When this is our friend Tommy Balaban. Cool, we can have a tournament. Simon plays winner. I don't play video games. All right, Wynn plays winner. (laughs) That's funny. Wynn plays winner? Tommy thought for a second and laughed too. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of is. You'll be playing me because I am unstoppable. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? Where does a general keep his armies? Sally Cathy tried to make up for the fact that she wasn't very good at the game by telling lots of jokes. Up his sleepies. <laughs> Even though she had Tommy laughing the whole time, he still won by four touchdowns. 
When it was my turn, I scored on the first drive. Yeah, touchdown! Tommy gave a big, pleasant smile. It seems we've got some competition here. I started joking and laughing, too. <laughs> we were all going to be in the same grade, and I liked the idea of having Tommy and Sally Cathy as friends. Tommy made several attempts to include Simon. Hey, Simon, uh, come on, give it a shot, huh? <laughs> no thanks. Every now and then, Simon would offer us pained half-smiles in response. <laughs> Tommy won, but just barely, and he and Sally Cathy played again. At halftime, I knew Simon's and my welcome were wearing thin. I tried making eye contact with Simon. <clears throat> he seemed to have no intention of ever leaving. I stood and I said I had to go. Well, uh, I gotta go. It was great to meet you. It was a lot of fun and great meeting everyone. Sure, a rematch. Tommy told me I could have a rematch any time, and we did a cross between a handshake and a high five. When Sally Cathy walked me to the door, that left Simon and Tommy in the living room, Simon glaring at the back of Tommy's skull. Hey, dude, you sure you don't want to play, or...? I'm good right here. Tommy cast an uneasy glance over his shoulder. Uh, cool. I was going to apologize again to Sally Cathy at the door, but she stopped me. That's just Simon. <laughs> My mother and father were sitting on the floor of the living room, surrounded by unopened boxes and drinking wine. Making friends already? My father's teeth were blue from the wine. I told you things were going to be great. They told me which room was mine, the implication being that I should maybe go there and start unpacking. I went upstairs and turned on the light in my new room. It was full of unopened boxes. The bed was assembled, but the mattress was bare. I laid there thinking about how I was going to see this ceiling every night until college. The overhead light looked like a nipple. I turned over. It wasn't late, but I drifted in and out of sleep because there was nothing else to do. In between ebbs of consciousness, I assembled my year. Tommy and I were going to be friends. He played basketball and so did I. I would meet his friends, and we'd eat at the same lunch table at school. I pictured Sally Cathy in her doorway, her beautiful teeth and her beautiful braids, and remembered my mother's talk about having adventures I could not yet imagine. Maybe she was right. For the first time since the words Loyal Oak came into my life, it seemed possible that everything might turn out okay. I was almost out for the night when there was a crack at my window. I thought it was a bird or the house settling until there was a second crack. Huh? I opened the window and looked out into the darkness. I squinted, 
could barely see Simon standing in my yard holding an open palm full of rocks. You're awake. I have something to show you. Now? Now. I didn't know this actually happened. There was no climbing tree outside my window to complete the cliché, and there was no reason to use it anyway. It was summer and not even ten o'clock. I walked down the stairs and out the kitchen door. My mom called out from the den. Have fun. When I found Simon in the yard, I could tell I wasn't being cloak and dagger enough for his taste. Where are we going? To one of my secret places. Simon led me through the wet grass of my backyard and into the woods. There was a half moon up in the sky, but even after my eyes adjusted, I still couldn't see more than a few feet in any direction. The woods were thick and tangled. Branches and brush tugged at my shoes and sleeves, but Simon pushed forward, more familiar with the place than I was with anywhere in any light. We came to a trail. I followed the outline of Simon's back, Simon pushing through the blackness. We were five minutes from our houses, but the only directions I was sure of were up and down, and they were not going to be of any use. The trail came to a V. Which way? They both go somewhere. The moonlight caught the curve of Simon's grin. He pointed to the right. That's better in the light. He pointed to the left. That's where we're going. The woods thinned and gave way to a grassy incline. The sky and horizon opened up and we were looking down upon all of Loyal Oak. Streetlights made the neighborhoods into grids. A car dealership and two gas stations, tiny from where we were, glowed brighter than daylight. We sat atop a manhole that jutted straight up a foot and a half from the sloping ground. Wow. Thanks for leaving me and my girlfriend today. We had things we needed to talk about. Sure. I knew that the gap between what he thought happened after I left and what actually did was probably as wide as what we were looking at. Cars whooshing through Loyal Oak echoed from the freeway. Crickets chirped. I hate Tommy Balaban. I didn't say I thought Tommy was a good guy. The number of people who don't need to be alive. It really adds up, when. I didn't say anything. I awoke the next morning in my new room to the smell of bacon and coffee. The nipple in my ceiling staring at me. I went downstairs and my mother was breaking in the kitchen and my father was reading the paper. 
Do we have a newspaper subscription already? It's a week old. Someone already did half the crossword puzzle and screwed up the jumbles. But I wanted to read the paper in my new kitchen. I sat down at the table with a glass of orange juice. And you guys thought you'd have trouble adjusting. I played with my fork and worked out my plan for the day. I was going to ride around the neighborhood on my bike until I accidentally ran into Sally Cathy or Tommy. Preferably Sally Cathy, sort of hoping not to see Simon without having to actively avoid him. Speaking of adjusting, your new friend stopped by this morning. Who? Simon. He wants you to spend the night at his house tonight. He sure is a twitchy little bugger. You think he's homeschooled? <sighs> Don't listen to your father. I think it's a great idea. The prospect of spending an entire night with Simon Litch made me uneasy. I'd really rather not. My mother set a plate of bacon and soft-boiled eggs in front of me. Nonsense. You need friends, and beggars can't be choosers. It's a great idea. Tell your son it's a great idea. My father folded over his paper and looked at me. Son, I'm going to level with you. Being loyal to a friend who's socially awkward and bizarre makes good sense. It's a good habit to get into. It'll make you look magnanimous. He disappeared behind his paper again. Do you know what magnanimous means? Yes. Good. You're going to fit in so well. Loyal Oak has one of the best school systems in the state. I tried to figure out why that should mean anything to me. My father pointed at his crossword puzzle. This moron thought there was a thing called the Miami Witch Trials. Simon's house was immaculate. Shoes off. He told me to take my shoes off when I entered the front door that led me through the house. Polished hardwood floors. Vacuum tracks in the tan carpet. We came to a gleaming kitchen that was ten different shades of cream. Do you guys have a maid? Hardly. Mother and father used to be such slobs. He ordered two cheese pizzas without asking me what I liked and paid with his father's credit card. As he dialed, I poured a glass of milk. Yellowish slime dripped from the carton, followed by curdled chunks of white. The milk had expired over a month ago. I opened the refrigerator, set the carton down, and poked around. Meats, cheeses, yogurt, eggs, all of it. Expired. Green fuzz peeked out of something wrapped in tinfoil. I don't like milk. Suddenly... Simon was standing next to me. He looked from me to the glass of milk on the counter, then back to me. 
It's better fresh. He chewed on his upper lip. He looked like he was making an important decision. That's okay. You can clean it before you leave tomorrow. Are your parents home? He opened a door to his left and ushered me to follow. No, they're at the lake. Simon descended the flight of stairs, me several steps behind. Before leaving the kitchen, I passed the breakfast table. The centerpiece was a vase of dead, flaking flowers sitting in stagnant water. We spent most of the night in the finished basement. Like all finished basements, it smelled like drywall. We ate the cheese pizzas with tap water and played Scrabble. Scrabble was the only game Simon would even consider playing. After a fourth game, I motioned to the entertainment center in the corner and asked him if he wanted to watch a movie. I don't watch movies. When he suggested we go to sleep at 10.30, I thought he was kidding. He wasn't. He unrolled his sleeping bag and started switching off lights. I wanted to leave. Man, did I want to leave. I wasn't in the same time zone as great or magnanimous. Simon's world felt wrong. More wrong than it should. Like, I was in a dream. But it was someone else's dream. I unrolled my sleeping bag and we laid in the dark. I was nothing close to tired. A green... Zero, 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 flashed on and off from the VCR in the entertainment center. I've come to the conclusion that Tommy Balaban is incapable of respect. He was at Sally Cathy's again today. They're friends. I take my commitment to Sally Cathy very seriously. If nothing else, Sally Cathy and I had one thing in common. Simon. She was his girlfriend the same way I was his best friend. And as long as we were too polite to be honest, he'd find a way to twist our politeness into validating his delusions. I'm sure being his girlfriend was worse, but she was two blocks away. And I was stuck in his basement. If there was a place where you could put all the lousy things in your life and make them disappear, would you use it? You mean like a bottomless pit? Something like that. I was pretty sore at my parents and probably would be for the foreseeable future. Moving to Loyal Oak was lousy. Having to watch a life that was going along just fine vanish overnight was lousy. It was going to be a long haul back to normal, and it would be the normal I wanted it to be. But would I lure my parents into a bottomless pit with a trail of crossword puzzles and find China? No, I did not think I would. I don't know. What if I told you there was such a place? Simon's face appeared and disappeared. 
appeared and disappeared to the flashing green 0000 from the DVD player. The white of his skin glowing, his copper freckles dulled to an inky black. Maybe I'd lead you there, I thought, and waited for sleep. Good morning. <laughs> Simon was showered and dressed when I woke the next morning. My watch read five and I wondered if Simon slept at all. He was playing Scrabble by himself. I have something to show you. I should get home. Do you remember the trail in the woods? Yeah. The place that's better in the light? Yeah. It's light. The hill overlooking Loyal Oak was pretty cool. Simon had been right about that. Spending time with Simon was like sitting in a dentist chair. But if there was something else worth seeing in those woods, I believed him. Besides, I was too polite to say no. All right. But then I have to go home. After that, I will insist that you go home. I have plans. I followed Simon through the woods to the trail and to the V. We went right, the trail twisting into a cool darkness. The morning sunlight blotted by a canopy of twining branches overhead. The two sides coming together like a slow closing trap. The trail eventually led to a pond no larger than a basketball court. The bank was a circle of thick, fluffy grass. Beyond the grass, dark, jagged trees reached from the ground like the skeletal arms of buried giants. A small, inflatable raft bobbed atop the brown water, tied to one of the trees. A folding chair sat in the grass, facing the water. Isn't this great? This is my pond. Other than being secluded and creepy, it was just a pond. I wasn't sure what I was supposed to be seeing. Sure, it's great. No one else knows it's here. Just you and I. It's cool. I started inching towards the trail. Um, I should get home. This is the place I told you about. The place that makes lousy things disappear. I was walking away, back the way we'd come. He didn't stop me. Whatever it was he wanted me to see, I guess I had, and was now dismissed. I left Simon there, standing in the thick, fluffy grass, staring at his precious pond. That afternoon, I rode my bike to Sally Cathy's house. There were no other bikes in her yard. I 
I knocked on the door and Sally Cathy seemed half disappointed when she saw me. I thought you were Tommy. You were supposed to be here over an hour ago. I could leave. She looked around and behind me. Simon's not with you, is he? No. Good. I'm in no mood for him today. Come in. Come in. I know what you mean. We drank soda on her back porch and waited for Tommy. I asked about school, but I didn't really care. I asked about her parents, but I didn't really care. I was just happy to be there. Then I asked about Simon. I've got to stop being so nice to him. You know what he thinks, don't you? That I'm his girlfriend? She narrowed her eyes, chewed on her upper lip, and mimicked Simon's clipped nasally whine. That's my girlfriend. That's my girlfriend. I joined in. This is my friend. This is my house. This is my forest. That stupid forest. (laughs) Always trying to get me to go back there. I responded more severely than I intended. Don't. I wouldn't be caught dead. (laughs) Finally, someone understands. You don't have to live next to him. She smiled and took a hold of her braids like they were pool strings to a hood. Yeah, you're screwed. I knew the courage to kiss her was in me, but I just didn't know where. I used to think finding yourself alone with a pretty girl was the hard part. Then I thought it was making them laugh that would be tricky, but I was wrong. The real hard part is what comes next. It's those last two feet that'll kill you. I leaned forward, casually, as though I was about to say something, cutting the distance between us to a foot. Being that close somehow made kissing her seem even more impossible. Whatever metal I momentarily thought I had drifted away. I acted like I forgot what I was doing and leaned back in my chair. The courage never came. Neither did Tommy, and I said goodbye and left just before sunset. See you tomorrow. Tommy disappeared. A week later, black and white Xerox copies of his handsome grinning face hung up on every tree, telephone pole, and community board in Loyal Oak. I saw Sally Cathy a few times. She was pale, her eyes swollen and red from crying, though she never actually cried in front of me. I didn't see Simon at all. Sofas and chairs were finding homes throughout the house, knickknacks finding their ways onto bookshelves and mantles, and my parents acted as though they had never lived anywhere else. I sat in the living room, TV was on, but I wasn't watching it. 
My dad was reveling in the day's paper, and my mom was stacking new china in a new china cabinet. Is Tommy Balaban's a good-looking kid? I hope they find him. The police think he ran away. Do you think he ran away? Run away in middle school? And those were the best years of my life. Pizza parties, pool parties, teachers give you candy on holidays. <laughs> It was heaven. So you don't think he ran away? Nah. He probably ran away. I wasn't so sure. What I thought did happen, though, I wasn't sure about that either. Through the window, a grocery truck pulled into Simon's driveway. Simon emerged from the house, spoke to the man driving, signed something on a clipboard, and the man dollied several loads of food into the house. Ten minutes after the truck pulled away, Simon struggled a wheelbarrow across his backyard and into the woods. The wheelbarrow was full of meat. A mound of raw steaks and hamburger. Even for Simon, that was inexplicable. I decided to check it out. A few minutes later, I headed for the trail. Simon was in the lawn chair, staring at the pond. The wheelbarrow was empty. A rifle lay across his lap. I'm mad at you. Simon addressed me without looking from the water. There were no birds in the trees. No chirping of crickets. No wind. It was as though the very ground itself was dead. You didn't clean your milk glass before you left my house last week. Oh, yeah, that... Um... And I could think of no more words. I had never seen a real gun before. A wide grin split his pale face, smearing his freckles. I'm just kidding, I cleaned it. Is that a real gun? This? This is a BB gun. It looked too big, too severe to be a BB gun. From where I was standing, the barrel looked like it could shoot silver dollars. My leg muscles began to shake and sweat slipped down my back. I'm just kidding. Simon smiled wider, set the gun on his lap, and put his attention back on the pond. You're my best friend. I couldn't hurt you. I have to go home. I began stepping away slowly. Thanks for stopping by. I walked backwards down the trail, never taking my eyes off Simon. He never took his eyes off the water. He disappeared around the bend in the trail. The lights in Simon's house burned until three in the morning. I waited in my room for an hour more. 
took my dad's mag light and slipped out the back door. I didn't switch it on until I was deep into the woods. I crept along the trail, flashing it towards every sound. I took the ride at the V. The lawn chair sat facing the water, empty. The inflatable raft bobbed gently up and down. I walked around the pond several times, flashing it into the trees, into the grass. No sign of Tommy. No sign of Simon. No sign of whatever it was I was looking for. I stood at the edge of the water, my tennis shoes sinking into the wet earth and shined the light into the water. The muddy floor was visible a few feet in front of me, but nothing beyond. I was about to give up when something small and round drifted across the surface within the light's beam. I thought it was an acorn. I shined the light directly on it. It was... Toe. A human toe, torn from a human foot. A small chip of bone jutting through red pulp. I fell backwards and scurried away like a crab. The maglite lay before me, shooting light across the pond and illuminating the inflatable raft. I had to see it. Tommy Balaban's body. When I told my parents I needed to be sure. I needed Simon to be one phone call away from being driven off in a cruiser or an armored truck. I wanted him out of my life by morning. I untied the raft and paddled with one plastic paddle to the center of the pond. The maglite was next to me and the yellow raft glowed like a paper lantern. I put the paddle in the water for one more thrust. Something within jerked at the paddle and I let go. Fear-charged adrenaline pulsed from my heart and through every vein and neuron in my body. I recoiled and nearly fell from the other side of the raft. The paddle bobbed to the surface. Nothing could be alive down there, I said to myself. I said it again and again. I didn't know how right I was. I shined the maglite directly into the water. There were six of them. The skin stark white. Six human bodies in various stages of watery decay, bobbing like corks. Around each of their necks was a length of chain fastened to rocks on the pond floor. They appeared to be moving. Then I realized they were. Twelve arms outstretched and grasping toward the raft, their fingertips mere inches away. One's flesh was almost totally gone, rags of cloth and skin floating around bone like wet tissue. Four were bloated, as though they might burst. A mailman, a policeman and a man and woman with fiery red hair. 
who remembered what Simon had said about his parents. They were at the lake. All six were missing significant chunks from the neck, the arm, the stomach, face. Tommy Balaban's neck muscles torn from his body danced and swayed in the ebb and flow of the water. He was looking at me. They all were. Their eyes like gray discs, their mouths opening and closing, opening and closing. I pulled the paddle from the water and frantically sculled towards shore. I hit ground and ran, leaving the maglite, the raft glowing behind me. I was on the trail and sprinting, engulfed in darkness, searching for light, any light, a beacon of the living world. There was a thud. I found light, but not the light I was looking for. It came to me in a flash, not from the world, but from within my own skull. From someplace far away, I felt my body drop to the ground. I awoke in the thick, fluffy grass surrounding the pond, covered with dew. The sky was gunmetal, and the air was early morning cool. I felt a lump underneath my hair the size of a plum. Simon Litch sat in his lawn chair, the rifle across his lap staring at the placid brown water. Propped up against the chair was the baseball bat he used on my cranium. Sleepy head. I'm glad you're awake. You'll want to see this. I struggled to put a sentence together. I'm sorry? You must enunciate. What are those things? Every lousy thing in my life. At least, that's what they were. Well, that's not completely accurate. One of them has been nothing but good to me. He was my best friend before you came along. I tried to stand. My brain felt like it was going to burst. I collapsed back onto the grass. Can you believe someone just left him down there for me to find? Poor guy. There's almost nothing left of him. I tried to stand again, and this time made it to my knees. Simon paid no attention to me. Yes. Good riddance to the five. I told you it really adds up. The other two are my friends. That's seven. There are only six. I told you. When you start doing the math, the number of people who don't need to be alive really starts to add up. Shh. You're going to love this. The water stirred. A small bulge emerged, sending ripples across the pond. The bulge became a head. And a head and shoulders. 
something was walking from the deepest part towards shore. Towards Simon. Skin chalky white, eyes gray. It reached for Simon and staggered slowly through the water and muck. That's my girlfriend. Sally Kathy's mouth was sewn shut with a leather string. No. A length of chain was padlocked around her neck. The other end of the chain and her wet braids swung like pendulums. There was a bite missing from above her left eye and part of her cheek was torn away. Sinewy strands dangling from the gate. Don't. 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 Simon set the rifle down on his feet and stood. Sally Cathy lurched one leg onto ground. He took hold of the chain and pulled her the rest of the way on the land. She pawed at Simon and pressed one of his hands to her fastened mouth. I love you too. He jerked at the chain and pulled Sally Cathy towards the mouth of the trail like she was an ornery dog. Come on! He looked over his shoulder at me. Now we've got to find you a girl. I was aiming for Simon's head. The bullet went into the back of his neck and out the Adam's apple. He let go of the chain and fell to the ground, writhing in sputtering red bubbles. Sally Cathy turned to me and held out her arms. Dripping water, chain clinking slowly, she came to me. She coiled her arms around my neck and pressed her lips to mine. Then my cheek, my neck... Her skin held a faint but fading warmness. I could feel the rhythmic clamping of her jaws inside her head. It wouldn't be long before she chewed through her own lips. I pushed her back with a rifle and leveled it on her. She came again, her arms outstretched. She walked directly into the rifle, the barrel pressed to her forehead. It's those last two feet that'll kill you, I thought. I'm sorry. And pulled the trigger. In our final tale, we join a hostage negotiator who's faced with the toughest and strangest negotiation of her life. Things have already gone from bad to worse, and it's her job to try to prevent them from becoming apocalyptic. And in this tale, shared with us by author Dave Cavanaugh, 
our negotiator is forced to ask a question. How do you reason with a god? Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Mick Wingert, Atticus Jackson, Kyle Akers, and Peter Lewis. So go in gently. Try not to think of the culprit as a monster. But don't rule out the presence of monsters entirely. It's the only way you're going to get a nightmare liberated. My eyes started burning the moment the helicopter door slid open. I hopped out, boots crunching into charred earth, and set off at a brisk walk toward the clump of military vehicles and tents. One of the soldiers broke away from the group and jogged to meet me. Sonia Tatarov? I nodded. Who's the commanding officer? Major Skeens, ma'am. He's in here. He led me through a throng of camouflage to one of the beige tents, and we ducked inside. I had been in a hundred tents just like it before. It was crowded with folding tables, each hidden by a mess of wires and maps. The soldiers all had paper cups of coffee in their hands, in dark circles under their eyes. The soldier saluted. The hostage negotiator's here, Major. The man I took to be Major Skeens whipped around and eyed me apprehensively no doubt assessing the threat to his power posed by a short, plump, gray-haired woman like me. About time. I've been sitting on my ass for three goddamn hours waiting for you to show up. I boarded the first helicopter out of Quantico. If you've got a problem, Major, then it's with the laws of nature that govern just how fast things can fly. Not with me. Trust me, lady, I do have a beef with the laws of nature. You see, they're not exactly behaving today, or haven't you noticed? Skeen spun to the tent wall and tore open a flap, revealing a square plastic window. The wind had risen outside and was carrying soot and smoke in great arcs over the landscape. As far as we could see, there was only ash and dirt. It was a charred desert. This morning, that was northeast Indianapolis. Gas stations and strip clubs and movie theaters. This afternoon, it's a wasteland. It's all dead, all gone, flattened, eaten away, nothing, nada. Not a scrap of shit standing over two feet tall. Can you explain that to me? Can you? I let him finish his rant, then crossed my arms. Smoke a cigarette, Major. Skeens stared, blinking, forehead comically furrowed. What? The stains on your fingers and teeth. You're a heavy smoker. But your hands are shaking, and you keep touching your breast pocket, so you've quit, probably recently. His cheeks flushed puce. So? So, it's a bad time to quit. It's distracting you. You need a cigarette. The Major inhaled through his nostrils and puffed up his chest like a displaying bird. I kept my amusement to myself and gazed back calmly. After a few seconds, he deflated. I don't need a cigarette. I shrugged. Suit yourself. And to answer your previous question, I can't explain what happened. I've read the same reports you have. Besides, if you want answers, ask an analyst. I'm just the negotiator. He gritted his teeth. We're not talking about some terrorist with a list of demands. This is a combat scenario, plain and simple. I have a target in my sights. I can take him out. 
but they tell me I have to wait until you come and assess the situation. What situation? There aren't any goddamn hostages. There are seven and a half billion hostages, and you can't honestly think a couple of Sidewinder missiles are going to fix this. What happened when the police moved in this morning? What happened to the National Guard this afternoon? Skeens opened his mouth to protest, but I cut him off. They're all dead. They're all gone. Nothing. Nada. And what's your genius solution? My lips curled into a soft smile. To be patient, to be smart, and to get a cup of coffee and a couple of chocolate donuts. You should have a cigarette. He scowled and ordered one of the soldiers to bring me a coffee. The coffee was hot and bitter, but I needed the energy. I blew at the steam and sipped quietly. Where can I find the psychiatrist? Skeens nodded to the far corner of the tent. I wove through the tables and communication equipment to where the psychiatrist sat. He looked positively exhausted. Several beads of sweat had fallen onto his glasses, and he hadn't bothered to wipe them away. There was a cigarette in his right hand, though the undisturbed rod of smoldering ash at its tip showed that he hadn't really been smoking it. Dr. Carson? Carson started. The ash fell from his cigarette. Huh? What? Oh, uh, hello. He stretched out a shaky hand, realized the cigarette was tucked between his fingers, and dropped it. He smashed the cigarette with the tip of his shoe. Sorry, I'm... I'm I'm tired. I nodded reassuringly. I'm Dr. Sonia Todorov. I understand you were the boy's psychiatrist? Part of the team evaluating him, yes. What can you tell me? Carson ran a hand through his thinning hair. About Andrew. Just what I told the other officers. He's 16, only child. Lives with his mother. Lived, I mean. He's been in treatment for an as-of-yet-undiagnosed psychiatric condition since last year. Uh, Some violent tendencies, but usually under control with medication. When did you get involved with this case? A couple of months ago. He was arrested in April for beheading the little boy next door. Okay, all that was in the file they sent me. What can you tell me about what happened today? Carson shrugged and pulled out another cigarette. Not much, really. I don't understand what happened. Cigarette? Please, tell me what you do understand. His hands were shaking worse than ever. He handed me a cigarette, which I pocketed, then struggled with his lighter. Well, Andrew's mother was getting desperate, you see. That's understandable. His legal defense of insanity was going to stand, but that wasn't enough for her. She kept saying he was a normal kid. Just... just a normal kid who messed up sometimes. She wanted Andrew cured. I shook my head. You can't cure a personality disorder. Carson finally managed to light his cigarette and take a long drag. He exhaled and watched the smoke snake upward in the still air. No, but we thought we'd try. So we altered Andrew's treatment in some... Radical ways. Radical how? I take it your methods weren't strictly legal? Well, you won't find any record of them at the Institute. That is, even if the Institute still existed. I leaned over and fixed my cold eyes on him. 
What did you do to the boy, Dr. Carson? As with Major Skeens, Carson's stubbornness melted into submission. We experimented on his brain. Electrical stimulation? Drugs? Yes, and other things. Less obvious, less technical. Pure, unrestrained, state-of-the-art experimentation. We, we only wanted to help him. Andrew has never managed to bond with anyone. He lives in his own world. A world inhabited by demons, monsters. He's obsessed with medieval times and fantasy. With our treatment, we, we hope to find a way to, you know, bridge the gap. Get him connected with the outside world. We, we never thought it could lead to this. His voice cracked and his eyes pleaded for forgiveness. I let out a hushed, mirthless laugh. Looks like you succeeded. Connections between Andrew's brain and the outside world. Extraordinary connections. He nodded, vanquished. I, d I don't know how it happened. I can't believe it. I, I just... Carson broke down, sobbing into his hands like a frightened child. <laughs> I was in Bloomington. The conference. Saw it on the news. Couldn't believe it. When they said... When they said the epicenter of the destruction was the Institute, I knew, somehow, that it was Andrew. I set a hand on his shoulder. Breathe, Dr. Carson. What do you think his limits are? He wiped at his tears and snot with the back of his sleeve. Limits? None. That's clear now. Andrew has... No limits. His imagination, his dreams, anything he envisions, they all just... I can't explain it. And Dr. Todorov, I know better than most that the boy's imagination is a deep, disturbing place. Carson pulled a used tissue from his pocket and blew his nose. Did you hear the reports that came in before everything went dark? About what people saw? Lightning. Earthquakes. Tornadoes of fire, for God's sake. And then, the monsters. Skeen snorted a laugh and marched over to join us. The only monster that concerns me is that psycho kid. So how about it, Miss Tatarov? You heard Dr. Carson. This young man is clearly a dangerous lunatic. There's nothing you can do for him. I gotta take him out. I sipped at my coffee. You're assuming, Major, that you are able to take him out. I assume otherwise. Regardless, I'm not authorizing a counterattack. Not yet. Damn it, lady! You're talking about negotiating with somebody that's got no grasp on reality. No grasp on reality? You really don't get it, Major. We're playing Andrew's game now. Playing by his rules. Trying to break those rules is pointless. The Major opened his mouth to retort, but I pulled the cigarette from my pocket and shoved it into his hand. Smoke this. Then get your men ready. We're going up there. I need to talk to Andrew. Am I understood? Skeens nodded feebly and poked the cigarette into his mouth. The taste and feel of the old friend between his lips made his eyes roll back. I grinned. Told you. Skeens ducked out of the tent, barking orders into the wind. I stayed to finish my coffee, 
and prepare my mind. As I paced about the tent, I happened upon a series of infrared images on a table. I fingered the stack of printouts, intrigued by the strange, luminous shapes they showed. Standing on a violet plateau was the white-hot silhouette of a human body. It was gaunt and willowy, clothed in something bulky that distorted the figure. And that was not all the image showed. Andrew was not alone. Ten minutes later, I stood under billowy pewter clouds and winced at the smell of sulfur in the air. The soldiers were still assembling, assault rifles in hand. Skeens was nursing his cigarette, sighing orgasmically with each puff. The young officer from before jogged up and held out the handle of a pistol. Sidearm for you, ma'am? No, thank you. The Major insists. I took the weapon. Its weight in my hand seemed to pull both my body and mind off balance. I tore my gaze off the pistol and surveyed the landscape. Something large and twisted lay in smoking pieces a hundred feet from the tents. The officer noticed me staring and grinned. Wild, isn't it, ma'am? Was that a train? He laughed and began to back away toward his men. (laughs) No, ma'am. That was a snake. Skeens finished his cigarette. As the final soldiers fell into ranks, the Major walked over to the back of a truck and lifted out a positively massive gun. He kneaded the weapon in his hands like a lover. Let's move out! Forty soldiers trekked forward in formation, weapons raised. I made sure no one was watching and tossed the pistol onto the ground. As I started forward with the troops, taking a place beside the Major, I wished I had had time to stretch that morning. My left hip was already sore. I really needed to see a doctor about the hip. We walked at a brusque pace through a break in the barbed wire perimeter and out into the ashen void. I could hear the rumbling of tanks following a hundred yards behind us. A minute went by. Two minutes. We moved through black fog, tendrils of the smoke clinging to our boots, ash stinging our eyes. This was a city. Just this morning. Think about that. Trying not to. I stumbled on something in the dirt and looked down, expecting to find a bit of stone or a tree root. It was a human femur. The soldiers came to a sudden stop. Distracted, I crashed headlong into a soldier's back. Skeens grabbed my arm to stop me from falling. Watch yourself, Tatarov. Why'd we stop? He pointed ahead. My stomach clenched like a fist. We stood less than a hundred steps from a massive wall. The air was so thick with smoke that I had to squint to make out any detail. The wall was at least 50 feet high, a heap of every sort of filth and debris. Concrete, asphalt, brick, wood, a dash of scrap metal, a smidgen of broken furniture, a hint of smoldering flesh. Skeens whispered his next orders to the men as if the wall might be listening. I cleared my throat and spoke in a clear voice. Circles. Andrew's protecting himself with concentric circles. Skeens shot me a stony look. Circles? The wall is circular, see? It curves away out of sight on either side. And the crack in the ground over there? Another circle. So? I know all that from the satellite feed. It means it's going to get more difficult and dangerous the closer we get to him. He's barricading himself in. Skeen signaled with his hands and the convoy inched forward again. I took a deep breath, 
My senses were growing alarmingly crisp. Every sound of a boot crunching on the ground or the butt of a gun scraping against a belt buckle seemed to screech in my ears. I could smell cheap aftershave on one of the soldiers. I could feel the murmur of the earth under my feet, vibrating softly. I shifted my gaze to the curved crack on the ground before us, 70 feet from the base of the wall. The first soldier had reached it and was just about to step across. As the heel of his boot touched down on the other side, there was a deep rumble from beyond the wall. Then another. Forty guns aimed up at the trembling barricade. A huge section of the wall erupted out, spewing debris through the air. Chunks of tarmac and swirling dust rained down around us. I screamed and fell to the ground, a jolt of pain blasting from my tailbone up to my neck. The cause of the wall's ruin emerged and charged toward us. The monster was half-hidden in dust and rubble, but I could see black horns and red eyes through the turmoil. Its dark skin rippled with the storm of bullets being fired. The blast of tank fire sounded behind us and a brilliant flash of orange flame made me cringe. The monster howled, a cavernous animal groan of death, and fell, shaking the earth with its massive weight. The soldiers shouted as they circled the colossal corpse. I forced myself to sit up, tears in my eyes ringing in my ears. The dust began to clear, and we finally got a good look at the attacker. It must have been 30 feet tall from horn to hoof. My voice sounded mute in my ringing ears. Is that... is that a rhinoceros? No one answered, but it was obvious now. The heads? It had two boasted ten-foot horns and lay upside down on the dirt, black blood bubbling from between their jaws. The tank had shot the beast on its shoulder, blasting a large portion of meat and bone completely off. Get this! We're sending in the choppers! Back to base! Move out! The troops immediately fell into ranks. Major, no! I coughed, rising with difficulty and stumbling to his side. Sorry, Tatarov, but I'm not risking any more of my men. We have to fall back and let the missiles fly. Then you'll just be sacrificing your pilots instead. Trust me, you're only making him more upset. He's not making me too happy either. I had to grab his elbow to steady myself. My left hip was in agony. One hour! Give me one hour with the boy, and after that you can try and blow up the whole place, even if I'm... even if I'm still in there. Deal? He waved dismissively at me, but we both knew he was obligated to acquiesce. <sighs> You're as crazy as he is, Doc, but be careful. The soldiers rushed past me, leaving me alone before the wall, alone with the monstrous corpse. The rhino had forged a path through the wall, so I had no trouble passing through it into the mist beyond. I wove through smoldering wreckage and found that the air on the far side, though dense with silver haze, had a certain sweetness to it. There was a sickly sort of perfume in the place, and I wondered why Andrew might have conjured such a thing. The most obvious explanation was that he was not in complete control of his creations, that his unconscious was filling in the details. Perhaps that meant he had less power than I had first supposed though I couldn't decide if that made things better or worse. I felt oddly at ease with these new surroundings. 
The ground was pounded flat into a chalky plain, except for a handful of bowl-shaped depressions. Though occasional tremors sounded underfoot, it was not as daunting as the ominous wall or naked exposure back at the military tents. As I walked on, I half-heartedly repeated passages from a dozen different textbooks, several of which I had co-written. But I doubted any pre-rehearsed hostage negotiation techniques would prove useful today. I would be winging my performance. The performance. The one that would matter. Wind cleared the mist and revealed a plateau ahead, like a miniature devil's tower. A hundred feet tall and a hundred feet in diameter. Its edges smooth, black, and glassy. Obsidian. I stopped and leaned on my right leg while massaging my left hip with the flat of my hand. I had nowhere to go now. There was no elevator, no ladder, not even a set of cracks to grip with my stubby fingers which I could try and climb. So I began to pace, eyeing the plateau with growing frustration. I came upon one of the bowl-shaped depressions in the ground and nearly fell into it. It was 20 feet in diameter and filled with scattered, jagged pieces of something brown. It almost looked like a giant clay pot had been shattered. Pieces of eggshell. Maybe the rhinos. So this is where he breeds them. I walked to another of the depressions farther off. Inside sat a speckled sphere the size of a car. That egg hadn't hatched. Yet. I sucked a breath through my teeth. Considered my options. I doubted Andrew would allow me to simply turn and run back the way I had come. My ears were clearing and my voice had gotten back some of its strength. Andrew! Andrew, I know! Almost before the words had left my mouth, a mighty roar sounded from above, and the ground shook. I stumbled, struggling to stay on my feet. I understand what they couldn't. I know where all this came from. The roar repeated louder this time, and the top of the speckled egg quivered and cracked. Please, Andrew! My name is Sonia. I'm not like them, I swear. The crack widened, and something glinted inside. An eye. I made my voice as hard and severe as a scolding mother. Andrew, talk to me! I understand, I really do! The eye vanished, and something long thin and hairy crept from the crack. A leg. They know it's real now, all of it. Every shadow, every whisper, every fear. They all see how real it is, Andrew. The leg began to tap viciously at the egg from the outside, stabbing holes, making a net of cracks. But I know that it was always real, always waiting inside you. Today isn't the day of conception. This is the day of illumination, of liberation. Your liberation! The ground stopped shaking. I waited. The egg imploded as if squeezed by a gigantic, invisible fist. In a moment, all that was left in the hole was a bit of shattered shell and a wad of bloody hair and iridescent eyes. I wringed my hands together. Thanks for that. And now, Andrew... I'm going to need a way up there. The air split with a noise like breaking glass. A strip of the cliff face fell away, 
creating a ragged, zigzagging staircase. I tightened my jaw and set off toward the stairs. The caffeine from my coffee was now coursing through my whole body, making my fingers tremble. I used a bit of the excess energy to force the fear I felt down to my gut, leaving it to harden and grow stale. The stairs were difficult to climb, slick and uneven, and halfway up I put a hand out to steady myself and cut it on a splinter of the glassy mineral. I cursed and pulled my hand back. Beads of blood dripped from two fingertips. I sucked at the blood and forced myself to keep moving. It was almost exciting. Almost. I knew what was to be found at the top of those stairs, but knowing was not the same as seeing, nor was seeing the same as truly believing. It was all too bizarre, too alien a circumstance for my brain to simply accept as genuine. I was dreaming. I was insane. I had taken a hallucinogenic drug. I had fallen into a storybook. But no. I reached the top, and there was the boy, as real and visceral as the cut on my hand. And there beside him, on the center of the plateau's flat top, lay the dragon. Andrew was clad from head to foot in gleaming silver armor like a medieval knight. Every inch of the steel was inlaid with ornate floral patterns. The armor was beautiful, but too big and bulky for him, with wide shoulders and an awkwardly heavy helmet. His young face shone through the open faceplate, gaunt and splattered with irritated acne. His eyes were wet, reddened, angry, watching me. I like your armor and your companion there. Remarkable. I forced the words out as I started walking to the plateau's center. I willed my eyes to look, to examine, to appreciate the ten-ton monster beside the boy. Its tail lay coiled like a black, quivering snake. Its foot-long claws scraped the glassy ground. Its leathery wings were gathered about its huge torso. Its head... Scales, snout, blood-red eyes, rows of yellow teeth was undeniably that of a creature which up to this day had only existed in fairy tales. Does it have a name? Andrew didn't answer, but turned and ran the palm of his right hand along the creature's neck. It craned its head to nudge against his armor, making a grating sound as the hard scales scraped steel. Could I bother you for a chair, Andrew? I'm too old and fat for all this climbing. My... my whole body aches. He cocked his head to one side inside the helmet like a curious dog, then flicked his gaze to a spot beside me. I turned and found that a chair had materialized. It was a squashy armchair with claw feet and a pattern of blossoming roses on the upholstery. A small magenta pillow sat in one corner. Thanks. A drawn-out groan of satisfaction leaked through my teeth as I sank into the soft seat. I ran my hands over the armrests. They were wood. Real wood. This is really incredible. You have an incredible mind. Truly. Once again, Andrew showed no visible response. He was standing so still, almost like the armor was empty but for the face and hands. 
I meant what I said down there, you know. I spent a long time breaking into people's minds, and what have I found there? Some minds are dusty, cluttered, even empty. But others... Others are special, like... Like a network of caves branching on and on and on. I found plots and characters that would rival Tolkien. I found wars, cities, landscapes. But I don't think I've ever encountered a brain quite like yours, Andrew. The corners of his lips did not move, but his eyelids tightened with the rumor of a smile. I motioned with both hands at the bleak scenery. All this... This has existed for years and years, cooped up between your ears. But they didn't believe in it. They said you were sick, delusional. They said your thoughts were evil, ugly, that it must all be squashed. But now they know. You showed them, didn't you? There was the slightest hint of movement within the armor as Andrew shrugged. I grinned. Quite an effective display. Do you know how it happened? How you can do these things? Another little shrug. I leaned back in the chair. Just curious. Have you played around much with your new power? Tested its boundaries? Andrew's mouth opened slightly, and he ran his tongue across his front teeth mechanically as he thought about the question. Without warning, the plateau shook violently. I tried to stay calm, but found my heart was racing too fast. I gripped at the armrests until my fingers hurt. Stone crunched as the whole plateau began to rotate, then my insides roiled as the plateau shot smoothly and swiftly off the ground and ascended into stormy clouds. I gasped, feeling cold mist whip past. Thunder clapped. The rushing air grew cold as ice as we rose. We came to a stop above the clouds, the plateau rotating leisurely miles over the earth. The only clouds at our height were the ones slipping out between my lips and Andrew's nostrils. I felt my chest constrict. The air was too thin at this altitude. Andrew must have recognized it too, for a moment later the plateau was cloaked in lusciously warm air. I breathed deep, closing my eyes and sighing, steadying myself. I looked up at Andrew. Wow. The dragon perked up at the sight of all that open sky and kneaded Andrew's side with its snout. The boy turned and nodded. The beast stood, stretched its grotesque muscles, and extended its grisly wings. A rush of air hit me as it beat its wings and ascended. There was an awkwardness to its movement. It hadn't yet refined its flying technique. Andrew and I watched the dragon circle the floating island of stone. With an effort, I relaxed my muscles and slowed my breathing. There was no time for terror or confusion. We need to talk about what happens next, Andrew. He shot me an irritated look, as if I had interrupted something important. The next hour, the next week, the next fifty years. You can't exactly hang around here with a hungry dragon and a shortage of plumbing. So, what's the plan? Andrew's eyes darkened, and he hunched forward, looking at the ground. He hadn't considered this yet. That was what I was counting on. It was the weakness that I could build upon, the seed of doubt that I could cultivate. I leaned forward in the chair, elbows on my knees. 
There are a lot of people that are going to try and stop you. No need for that look, Andrew. I know you can handle them, but you shouldn't have to. It's silly for someone with your abilities to have to bother with such trivial matters. He was listening closely now, and I could sense the wheels turning in his head. I had to be careful. If I came on too hard and upset him, he might snap his fingers and end every human life in an instant. That would certainly solve his problems. But causing more destruction wouldn't help you either. There's another way, another choice. One where you earn the respect you deserve and have no one ever bother you ever again. A look of deep hunger came over his face. I squinted, trying to frame my icy blue eyes with my most wicked smile. Do you know what you are, Andrew? He blinked, confused. Think about it. You've made your fantasies come true today. You've made the myths real. What are you, Andrew? For a moment, his cheeks flushed dark with frustration. Then slowly, he smiled. When he spoke, his voice was high and fragile as a child's. But there was a heavy weight to the words. I am God. I nodded. That's right, the accidental god, the accidental fulfillment of every prophecy and reply to every prayer. Congratulations! I tilted my head forward in a subtle bow. He straightened up in his armor, and for the first time it looked like it fit. I sat back and slapped the armrests. So, there is our solution. He cocked his head. What I mean is... Take advantage of your unique position. Show them all what you can do. Rebuild. Restore. Solve the problems of the human race. Then they will see how wrong they were about you, and what's more, they will bend the knee before you. Worship you. Be forever in your debt. There was doubt in his eyes as he listened. He wasn't convinced. I cursed inwardly, wondering which angle to pivot to next. But then you can go. Once you're done, go wherever you want. Find a new planet for your dragon. Make a new planet, a new universe. But after you've done some work here, after you've shown them all how badly they misjudged you, all those people that thought there was something wrong with you. Andrew sighed. It was a peculiar sound, soft and high with an air of immense impatience. He didn't say anything, but I could read the message plain in his expression. Why should I bother? I swallowed. I was tired. I was sore, thirsty, hungry, and the cut on my hand was stinging. I wanted this to be done and to be back on the ground, back in my condo, back in my bed with my wife, Charlotte, snoring softly beside me. Away from all this... I stood with a little groan. I put my hand on my sore hip. Five minutes, Andrew. Five minutes of your imagination and humanity might actually have a chance. Just help me out. Help us out. I can't waste a chance like this. Just try, please. Andrew stepped forward, his metal boots scraping noisily against the smooth stone. He marched until he stood directly in front of me. We were the same height and stared straight into one another's eyes. At this proximity, 
I noticed golden slashes against his dull brown irises. Beautiful eyes up close. What are you going to do, Andrew? Decide. What are you going to be? Your armor's like a knight's. Is that what you want to be? A knight? A hero? The savior of the world? Because so far you've only proved them right about you. All this destruction is easy. Challenge yourself, Andrew. Try for... for creation. He slowly extended the tip of his tongue and let it roll over his chapped lips. He lifted an arm, the joints of the armor squeaking, and opened his right hand. It was empty. Then the air above his palm began to glow softly pink. An apple materialized, plump and red and glistening. I smiled. He smiled back, but there was no joy in the expression. It was empty, hollow, vacant. He did not need to speak again. I saw his eyes and knew that I had failed. There was a muted pop, like the bursting of a cork in a back room, and Andrew's face went rigid. Even his bony frame bounced around in the armor. He fell backward in a tumult of colliding steel plates, blood squirting from his mouth, his nostrils, and the corners of his eyes. I gasped as the apple thudded to the stone at my feet. The boy's body did not move again. I guessed that the blood leaking from the helmet contained brain matter, and that behind his skull, his beautiful brain was now ruined. The delicate, miraculous connections of neurons tattered and broken. I forced myself to take deep breaths all the way down to the diaphragm to stay present, to not panic. But a new fear gripped me. With Andrew dead, what would happen to his creations? Would the armor vanish, leaving behind a frail and naked child? Would the dragon attack, immersing me in hellish fire? Would the floating island plummet down to the earth? But nothing changed. Andrew lay, a silver-clad corpse, and I stood over him, alone, a failure. I leaned down and picked up the apple holding it close to my nose to breathe in the fresh scent of the fruit. The helicopters arrived minutes later and shot the dragon with a pair of screeching missiles. The last I saw of it was a fiery bit of wing disappearing behind a veil of cloud. A rope slithered onto the stone beside me and a dozen troops slid down onto the plateau. They surrounded Andrew's body, shouting and pointing their guns, useless and pitiful. One of them was talking to me, but I couldn't really understand the words. They sounded strange, like something underwater. It was not until Major Skeens arrived and gave me a boorish, congratulatory slap on the back that I blinked and looked up. What? <laughs> I said not bad. Whatever you did seemed to work. What happened, anyway? The kid's skull is split right down the back. His brain's mush. But there's no bullet wound in the helmet, and none of my men made the shot. I explained aloud more for myself than for Skeens. I held up the apple. Andrew killed himself. That was his opus of revenge. His perfect, final insult. He let us know that he could do anything. Then he did nothing. The Major shook his head. Long as he's dead, I'm happy. And I gotta say... If there's anyone that can talk a man to death, 
It's you, Doc. He laughed. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> Say, you, uh, think that apple's poisoned or something? When I shook my head, he snatched it and took a loud bite, juice dribbling down his chin. The sun was vividly bright as it made its slow, predictable descent to the western horizon. I wondered if I would be home in time for supper. Charlotte was making tacos tonight, or if I'd have to eat on the way back to Quantico. Skeens finished the apple and tossed the core over the edge. One of his soldiers was on a cell phone, speaking fast. Another was telling a dirty joke. Except for the vacant, smoking countryside below, it looked to be a perfectly ordinary evening. As we place the letters back in their envelopes, it's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.